contemplate and cogitate on this wonderful truth that it simply has to be Jesus. And then, like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz, how are you going to put that into action? So if you've not done so already, please do uh, grab your Bibles and uh, and open them up to Ruth chapter 4. And we're going to do what we've done for the last three weeks. We're going to walk through it together and then we're going to draw some conclusions. What did it say? What does it mean? What do we do? And then because it's the end of the book, we're going to draw some very big picture conclusions. I'm going to challenge you to do something the end of this message Uh, so please don't switch off five minutes before the end because you know it's coming but the bible should stir us into doing some stuff so i'm going to challenge you to do some stuff uh, at the end of today so ruth chapter four where did we leave it last week well we left it at the end of chapter three and there was a bit of tension uh wasn't there we said that ruth knows she's going to be redeemed Today, today is the day for Ruth. She is going to be redeemed, but she's not 100% sure by who. She knows she is going to be redeemed. She doesn't yet know by who. So there's a little bit of tension. She knows that great things are coming, but she doesn't know exactly when. And she doesn't know exactly how. And it's that wonderful Christian tension thing of being already saved, but not yet quite saved. But today is the day for Ruth. And maybe, who knows, if you're watching us and you've never really decided, then we pray that today is the day for you as well. So grab those Bibles and grab something to highlight, underline, circle, put a sticky note in there, whatever you do. But again, if you're going to mark up your Bibles, please make sure that your Bibles, the Word of God is going to mark up your life as well. So we're going to walk through Ruth chapter four. We're going to see what it says. We're going to talk about what it means as we go. And we're going to draw some conclusions. So Ruth chapter four begins by saying that Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. It might seem a very strange place to you to go and do some business, the gate of the city. It might sound strange because a lot of the places we live don't have walls, and therefore you don't need a gate. Uh, if, you, if you're with me physically in Bahrain, uh, you will have probably, maybe, either been to, seen, or heard of a place called Barb al-Bahrain, the gate of Bahrain. And uh, if you've been there, you'll know it's quite urban, it's quite bustling, but that is where the coastline was. What, where are we now? 50, 60, 70 years ago. If you, if you sailed into Bahrain, you would get to Bab al-Bahrain, and that was the gate into Bahrain. And the kind of gate that Boaz is, is sitting at here, where all of this takes place, would have been just like Bab al-Bahrain, this big ceremonial gate around which are walls. And if you've ever been to Bab al-Bahrain, you'll know that as you walk through the gate, it's not just a gate. Behind the gate, there are little places where you can sit and there are little 
kind of alcoves and little cutout bits where you could sit. And that's where the business of the town and the business of the city took place. And that's where things happened uh, at the time that these events of Ruth took place. Places of business, uh, markets, courthouses, anything remotely official took place in and around uh, the gate of the city. So Boaz goes there because he needs to get some stuff done. So he goes to the right place to get it done. And we read uh, that the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, and that was for us last week in chapter 3, verse 12, uh, came by and Boaz, said, Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And um, he <laughs> he actually... He calls him uh, he calls him friend. It's a Hebrew idiom for calling somebody, you know, oh, what's his name, so and so, somebody that you don't feel it's really important that you use your name, but you're just kind of getting them. And and if you read around this, it's uh, it's this guy remains nameless because he didn't do what he was obliged to do. He was the first in line to redeem Ruth and the property and the land and all of it. He should have been the guy. But he wasn't the guy and he remained nameless and it's a bit of a kind of a, a very polite slap in the face that look you probably should have done this anyway so boaz is there at the gate he gets uh, we read 10 10 men of the city uh 10 10 men of the elders of the city and um there's no particular reason why it was 10 many many years later uh, 10 became the number that you needed to have a proper proper meeting, a proper service in a, in a Jewish synagogue to have a, a meeting as such. But here it's just, I think Boaz really wants to make sure that what he's doing is, is as, as official as it could possibly be. And just for a bit of context, before you start thinking of a group of old fellas sitting around drinking tea and talking, el elder just means... Somebody who is a community leader, it doesn't mean old man. Uh, it just means somebody that's a leader within that uh, community. And really what is old to somebody is not old to anybody else. And then along comes the Redeemer, Boaz says, over here so-and-so. And then he lays out the case for this guy uh, in verses 2, 3, and 4. And he lays out the case step by step. Uh, so read with me. Uh, let's read. Verses 3 and 4 of Ruth chapter 4. Then he, says Boaz, then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So Boaz lays it out for him. Here's all this land property that uh, belongs to this family. And the, the dad, the two sons have died. Naomi's looking to offload it. You've got first option as, as redeemer of this land. And uh, like most people in that situation, given this option of, look, we've got some family land. Uh, would you like it? The Redeemer says at the end of verse 4, he says, I will redeem it. Not many people are going to turn that down, are they? But then Boaz, he's laid this out very cleverly. And uh, he includes all the particulars, everything that comes with the land, 
in verses 5 and 6. And, uh, and then the Redeemer changes his mind. He says, look, Boaz says, look, it's kind of a package deal. The day you get the field, you also acquire Ruth, widow of the dead, and you need to raise up a son so that that, that son can inherit his dad's land. And then you've got Ruth. You probably should take uh, care of Naomi as well, because if you're going to redeem properly and thoroughly, it's not only property, but it's it's, it's persons and it's it's uh, it's it's posterity. It's just, it's everything. It's a package deal. Persons, people, property, posterity, all this stuff. It's a package deal. So look, when you if you get this land, you're also taking on a widow whom you need to marry and have a son with, so that that son can then inherit this land ultimately. And you probably should take care of Naomi as well. He says, the day you buy the field, you also acquire Ruth, widow of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So basically, marry Ruth, have a son, and the son will ultimately get this land. And then the Redeemer says in verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So this first... Boaz has got the attention by offering him this wonderful, look, here's some family land. Uh, do you want it? And this guy said, yeah, absolutely. And Boaz lays it out. So actually, there's more to it. It's, it's, it's going to be a need to look after the land. There's also a couple of people and potential children. And this nearest kinsman, the first, the first the guy with the first option to redeem all of this uh, land and, and property and people and look after the posterity of the family has said, oh, thanks, but no thanks, in case I impair my own inheritance. So the, probably the best way to understand this is that he needs to marry Ruth, you need to have children to keep on their family lines and their children would not only inherit this new land, but as a son of this new dad, also a bit of everything that he has as well. So he just says, look, it's, it's, going, to, it's going to change too much and uh, so thanks, but no thanks, Boaz, uh, you're up. And then in verses 7 through to 12, the deal is sealed. Now, there are no contracts. There's no putting things into escrow and waiting for a little while. There's no government office to visit and get a stamp. And then you're going to see that guy and you get another stamp. And you go back to the first guy because he forgot to sign it. And you go to the third guy because you go to the fifth. There's none of that. There's no, there's no procedure. But they're still making it official and right and proper in the eyes of witnesses and the authorities. They've not done this in a little shady backstreet deal. They've made they're making it as legit and public as they possibly can. Last week, then uh, there was a little bit of biblical dating advice uh, in Ruth chapter three. And we said that you really ought to get to know your potential Ruth or your potential Boaz in a very public setting, because then you see how they interact with a range of people, not the person that they want you to see as to draw you in to this, oh, this, this, this guy is he's, he's really nice, he's ooh, yeah, wonderful lady. Today is a little bit more biblical dating advice from Ruth and Boaz, and it is that they take advantage of the opportunity to make their relationship as official and as public as possible. 
Now, if we put this into 2020, we're talking about marriage. The biblical dating principle here that's bubbling to the surface in Ruth, chapter four, is don't be those people that just kind of float along and we've, we've never seen the need to get married. We're just committed to one another. No, there's an institution there that you can take advantage of. Be married, make, it, make your relationship and celebrate your love as officially as you can, both in the eyes of people and in the eyes of the divine. So two weeks, uh, chapter three, chapter four of Ruth, two bits of biblical dating uh, advice from Ruth and Boaz. And then to seal the deal, uh, we ex <laughs> sandals, shoes, flip-flops, jandals, thongs, whatever you call them, wherever you're from, they're exchanged. And uh, quite simply, this is just to show that Boaz now has the right to walk on that land because we're swapping shoes. And then he announces it, makes it as public as he possibly can in verses 9 and 10. So read with me verses 9 and 10. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belong to Elimelech and all that belong to Kilian and Tamar. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Marlon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. At the time, customs, culture, this could not get any more official. He's done it in the right place. He's got the right people there. He's followed the right process and procedure. Now he's making this big grand announcement that this is what's happened. This is what I've done. It's as official and as legitimate as it could possibly be. And then all the people respond in verses 11 and 12 and they say we are witnesses may the lord make the woman who is coming into your house like rachel and leah who together built up the house of israel may you act worthily in ephrathah and be renowned in bethlehem and may your house be like the house of perez whom tamar bore to judah because of the offspring that the lord will give you by this young now, there's a bit of history going on here, and we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. But uh, we, we read of Rachel and Leah. If you've been uh, walking through Genesis with us on a Tuesday in our podcast, audio-only teaching, you will, you, you will have heard about Rachel and Leah back in Genesis. Uh, very simply, the witnesses, the people are saying, look, we pray, we hope, we want Ruth to be like these two ladies who had many children and built up the house. Perez and Tamar, both very appropriate to mention. Uh, Perez was an ancestor of Boaz. He was born uh, by a surrogate father. Uh, Ruth and Tamar, both foreigners that married into the family of God's people after their first husbands uh, died, leaving them widows, and they participated in this, this cultural custom of all right, then somebody, somebody else in the, the family uh, really needs to um, carry on the, the line, so to speak. So we've announced it, the people have affirmed it, and they've blessed it. 
And then in verses 13 to 22, we see the legacy of their love in action. And the conclusion to the book of Ruth is a wonderful, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a wonderful symmetry between the end of the book and the start of the book. At the start of the book, remember, Naomi was a bitter, childless widow. And here, she's back to being joyful, the, the original meaning of her name. She's joyful. She's got a family line and children and she, It's all being restored and redeemed for her. So verse 13, then, we see that Boaz and Ruth are happily married with children. Uh, 14 and 15, there's lots of blessings going on. The ladies of the town, they bless Naomi, they bless her grandson, Obed. They bless the Lord and Boaz. Boaz, there's lots of blessings going on. It's just a, a great after-wedding celebration of the love. And we pray this for you and we bless it. Oh my gosh, is not is this stuff just, isn't this just great? And then the book finishes with a genealogy. This wonderful story of redemption and family and, and tension and, and, and love in action finishes with a family tree, finishes with a family line. And we said we'll talk about history and this is, and this is why. The genealogy at the end of the book, uh, verses 18 through to 22, it's probably the last paragraph in your Bibles uh, in the book of Ruth. It roots this book. It puts the book of Ruth firmly as history. It shows us that this is not a cleverly designed parable designed to teach you some very deep truth, but with a lot of fictional made up people that could be you, if you really think about it. That's not what the book of Ruth is. Yes, Ruth teaches deep truth, and we'll go in there in a couple of minutes. Ruth teaches a deeper truth, but through historical events, these are real people who had real families because of their real love for one another and for God. So maybe you think, you know, is this a, is this a really strange way to end this book? Well, I'm going to tell you, no, it's not, uh, because this, uh, this sets up a real and demonstrable genealogy, a, a, a true and right family line to David and then onto Jesus. And it establishes him, the Messiah, as a real person with a real family history. Here, specifically, we're talking about a family history of redemption. This is the family business, almost, you could say, of this family, the family business of this family is redemption. And we see that Jesus comes and he does even better than the generations that go before him. He's taken over this family business and he's fulfilled all that it possibly could ever be. It's real people who experience real love for one another and for God, who put that real love for one another and for God into real action. And we see some real redemption. We've said a few times that, you know, the Old Testament is often uh, taught as being very moral. So we, uh, we look at what went on we do our best to avoid it and improve on it. And if you're, if you're looking for, for moral lessons, if you're looking for a kind of a, a, a surface level 
shall we say, meaning to the book of Ruth, we see that God will use unpromising, pretty negative circumstances and situations to bring blessings to other people if those people will just trust and obey him. Ruth was, Ruth was a foreigner. Ruth was not born into the, the family line of, of, of Israel, God's people. She was a childless widow. She was poor. She became a believer. She became a wife. She became a mum. And she became rich physically. But more importantly, she became rich spiritually as well. And the key to all of that was her faith in God. And that she did something about it. We said a couple of weeks ago, she didn't sit at home and wait for a, a super spiritual out-of-body experience before she did anything. There was no need to, for her to validate what she knows is true with an experience. There was no need for her to validate what she knows to be true with experiences. She put herself into action based on what she knows and her faith in God as well. What did she do to deserve all of this? Why Ruth? Nothing. She didn't earn it. She didn't deserve it. It all came to her by grace through faith. So if you're looking for a kind of a surface level meaning from Ruth, I'm going to suggest to you that that's what it is. Faith in action. Ruth put herself out there. She took the initiative many, 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 many times as we looked at this story together. But is that, in, is that enough? Is that enough for the book of Ruth? Is that really why Ruth's in the Bible? Is that what Jesus was talking about when he was on the road to Manus and he opened up every, the, the, the two guys' minds and said, I'll show you how it all points to me. Or what John writes about in John chapter 5. And Jesus is speaking, and he said, look, you search the scriptures because you think you're going to find eternal life, but it's the scriptures that bear witness to me. So is, is, that, is that really, is that really what Ruth is about? Is that enough? Is that enough for you to read Ruth and take away some good old-fashioned moral lessons? Because for me, it's not. No, no way is that enough when we read Ruth. Well, you know, put your faith into action and get out there and do stuff. Yeah, that's really important. But is that enough? I don't think it's enough. So the big, beautiful, theological message of Ruth. What does Ruth teach us about God? I read this. God cares for needy people like Naomi and Ruth. He is their ally in this chaotic world. He richly rewards people like Ruth and Boaz who demonstrate sacrificial love. And in so doing that, become his instruments in helping the needy. God rewards those who sacrificially love others in ways that exceed their wildest imagination and transcend their lifetime. Very, very simply, Ruth teaches us that God redeems us. He's put it out there. The, the redemption that, that we saw happen to Ruth over these last four weeks is available even bigger and even better 
for you. Let me tell you why. So if you've got a pen, I'm going to give you some verses, passages to, uh, to go away and read and, and to back up what I'm saying. This is scripture teaching scripture. This is not some wonderful revelation that I had this week. This is what the word teaches us. So just think then how this book points us to Jesus. If you've got a pen, you can write this down. The kinsman redeemer in this story, this account, had to be a family member. Boaz was a relative of the family and he was a relative of the people in need. In Philippians chapter 2, around verse 7, we see that Jesus added humanity to his eternal deity. That means that he was and is and always will be fully God. He didn't lose any of that. He added humanity to that so that he could be our human kinsman and save us. It's so important that we know that Jesus had a real family line. He wasn't just some mystical apparition that looked like a man, that turned up at the right time and behaved kind of like a man. Part of the reason why that genealogy is so important, we see that there's a real line of people here. Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer to Ruth, was not motivated by self-interest. He was taking on multiple financial and emotional burdens here, but he was motivated by his great love for Ruth. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, we see that Jesus' motivation for redeeming you is his great love for you. Boaz as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, needed to have a plan. He needed to have a plan to get this done. And some people might have thought it was really foolish. You know, Boaz, why go as public and as official as you can and offer this other guy everything first? Why not go to him personally, privately, not publicly? Some people would have thought that plan was ridiculous. But he needed a plan to redeem Ruth. Jesus' plan for redeeming you and me is looked at as being a failure. And his plan is looked at as being foolish. You read about that in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Boaz, as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, took her as his bride. And we, you and me and us, the, us, the, the people of, of, of God, those who've put hope and faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, are consistently referred to in the word as his bride. Boaz took her as his bride. We, the people, the church that Jesus has redeemed are collectively and consistently called his bride. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 21. Boaz, as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, provided a glorious turnaround in fortunes and a glorious destiny for Ruth. She was a poor, childless, foreign widow. Jesus, as your redeemer, provides a glorious destiny for you 
And you can read about that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It all, all of this comes back to the truth of Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. I read this week that that is why he became a man to redeem you. God became a man and lived among us, took on flesh, died the death, even the death on a cross to redeem you. It could have been done so many other Could it have been done so many other ways? Yeah, of course it could. God could do as he pleases. He could have sent some angel to save us. He could have just clicked his fingers and redeemed us. Could have sent some other supernatural, otherworldly, non-human being to redeem us. But they wouldn't have been our kinsmen. They wouldn't have been like us. They wouldn't live as we live, walk as we walk, feel as we feel. They could have redeemed us, but they wouldn't have been our kinsmen. Even Jesus, in his eternal glory, without the addition of humanity to his deity, wouldn't have been our kinsman. On the other side of that coin, God could have raised up a great prophet. God could have empowered a wonderful, caring, loving, kind, compassionate priest to stand in the gap between him and us. But that great prophet or that wonderful priest could never be our redeemer because they're human and they're sinful, just like us. Yeah, they could be our kinsmen, they'd be just like us. But they can't be, could never be our redeemer. So then the conclusion is it absolutely has to be Jesus, does it not? Eternal God, who added humanity to his deity, has to be Jesus for your life because he is both your kinsman, he is like you, and he is your redeemer because he is God. It absolutely has to be Jesus. What do you, so what do you do with this then? What do you do with this? Yes. Take a moment and think about your love in action, the moral lesson of, of, of doing some stuff. Think about how you're putting your love for other people into action, like Naomi did, like Ruth did, and like Boaz did. But more than that, today, as soon as we are finished, I would exhort you and charge you and commend you with all the authority that the role I have and the office I hold brings with it to just sit quietly for a couple of minutes. This is going to do so much more for you than getting out there with a big plan to save the world. Sit quietly for a couple of minutes and consider this truth that it simply has to be Jesus for your life. It has to be Jesus as your kinsman redeemer. He is your kinsman having taken on flesh he is your redeemer because he is eternally God. And he fused those two things forever. He forever wedded himself to humanity so that he is the only way. And he is the only truth. 
and he is the only life. It simply has to be Jesus for your redemption. If all of that is true, if you believe, if you truly believe that all of what I've just said, all of that is true, then your aim today and every day has to be a radical, life-offering, self-sacrificing obedience to Jesus. If you believe what I just said, there is nothing else to do but give all of yourself to him. If all of that is true, if you believe what I just said, intellectual agreement, sitting and nodding, that's not enough. Feeling positive about this, getting a warm fuzzy, that's not enough. Yes, you need to understand and agree. Yes, this is going to make you feel good. But it's not enough, is it? If what I said is true, it demands a radical whole life, whole mind, soul and strength change. A whole life, a whole thought, action, reaction, everything. It demands that kind of response if you believe what I just said. I'm going to stand here and tell you that I truly believe in every single word that I just said. So I'm going to challenge you, I'm going to commend you, I'm going to exhort you with all the authority, the role and the office that I've got to take some time today, actually do this. Don't just pretend you're going to do it. Don't just think, yeah, yeah I'll try and get around to it. Sit, think contemplate and cogitate on this wonderful truth that it simply has to be Jesus. And then, like Ruth, like Naomi, like Boaz, how are you going to put that into action? I would love to hear from you this week. No, I would love to hear from you today. If you've sat and if you've thought and if you've really internalized this truth that it has to be Jesus, I would love to hear from you what you want to do with it, how it's going to change you, what you want it to change in your life. But please do sit, think and contemplate on this wonderful truth that it simply has to be Jesus for your redemption. Let's pray.